Lessons from the Life of Moses. This is uh, part number three today now. And again, if you have not been here the first two weeks, each of these messages is building off the previous ones. And so if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I'd highly recommend go back. Uh, again, all of our messages are online and uh, you can listen to them or watch them for free or, what, or, or whatever you want to do there. But uh, I would recommend you go back because we're building. And what we're doing in this series is we've been looking at four stages or seasons that God took Moses through as he moved him from being an ordinary person who God couldn't use as he moved him into being an ordinary person who God could use. And again, the thing I've been stressing throughout this series over and over again is that at no point was Moses ever a superhero. He was never a superman, a super prophet. He was never any of those things. At at, at Moses' entire life, he was only ever a regular, frail, ordinary human being just like you and me here today. That was Moses' whole life. He was just regular. There are no superheroes in the Bible. There are just regular people who get used by God. And so, but of course, as we know, there's different kinds of ordinary people. There are ordinary people who don't get used by God and who can't be used by God. And there are ordinary people who are powerfully used by God. And in this series, uh, what we're looking at is God took Moses through a lengthy process and he'd taken him through this process from being ordinary and unusable to ordinary and the power of God is just all over his life and very usable. And, uh, and so we've looked at three stages so far. The first stage we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the wants to save the world stage. Uh, you know, the first third of Moses' life, the first 40 years of his life, very self-confident, you know, great intentions. He's going to do great things for God and God can't use him. Because he doesn't depend on God. He wants to do it in his own strength, his own way, all of that sort of stuff. And so God has to send him out into the desert, stage two. The desert is something that God will use in our lives to break us of our illusions of ourselves, to break us of our self-reliance and get us to a place where we will depend on the Lord. And so God took Moses from stage one. He had to put him in stage two. Stage two isn't a lot of fun, but it's an important part of God's process. And then last week, we spent the whole, week, the, the whole message basically looking at Moses' burning bush encounter with God. At the end of his 40 years in the desert, Moses has this encounter with God. And out of that encounter, uh, Moses grudgingly begins to obey. And it's really important that he obeys because as we looked at last week, um, people think that if you have an encounter with God that changes your life, and it's not true, it's only if you say yes to, in the encounter. If you disobey, if you refuse you know, what God's doing in your life, and it just an encounter, an experience with God, you can be the craziest, most amazing experience, but experiences with God will not change your life. It's only when you say yes, coming out of the, spirit, the experience, you say yes to God. And so Moses does say yes. And of course, as we saw last week, he's not wholehearted yet. He's, uh, he's got some compromise in his life. His obedience is grudging, but he does say yes, and he begins to move out of the desert stage, and that's stage three. And, uh, and then today, what we're going to get to is we're going to get to stage four, and next week we're going to expand on it even further. Um, but I want to show you now, today and in the next couple of weeks, I want to show you one overarching principle in stage four that Moses gets to in his life, which utterly transforms his life. And that same thing is available to each of us here uh, today. And so let's pray again a second time. You can't pray too much at church. And then we'll get into this, uh, into this message. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we are we're devoting the next... Uh, you know, the next 45 minutes, 50 minutes, Lord, we are devoting this time to you. We are opening our hearts to you. Father, my prayer this whole weekend for this church has been, Lord, that you will give us a fresh touch. Every person here this morning needs a fresh touch, a fresh word from you. 
Whatever the circumstances we come in here with, whatever the pressures, whatever the stresses, Lord, we need a fresh touch from you this morning. Lord, I pray that you will give it to us. I pray, Lord, that we will leave this message here today with a deep hunger for going into your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm just going to pick up where we left last week. We've just been cruising through the, the first few chapters of Exodus. Last week we finished the message there in uh, near the end of Exodus chapter 4. We finished with that really strange story. I won't mention it again, but you know the whole tent thing and the circumcision and, and all that stuff. And, uh, but Moses, we, where we left was Moses is on his way to obey. He is doing what God told him to do. He is on his way out of the desert. He's on his way to Egypt to talk to the Israelites and Pharaoh to tell them that God wants the Israel, the, you know, to Pharaoh to let his people go. And so we pick up the story, Exodus 4, verse 29, and I'm just going to read every verse from Exodus 4:29 to Exodus 6, verse 2. We're going to go right through chapter 5, and, uh, and uh, let's see uh, what God wants to say to us this morning. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay? And they all lived happily ever after, right? I mean, isn't this how it's supposed to work, right? God tells you to do something. He gives you an assignment. You go and do it. And everything just falls into place. One, two, three. Because he told you to do it. You did it. He smooths the way for you. And it all works out. Right? And they all lived happily ever after. I just wish we could stop this message right here. Right? Because as you all know, things don't turn out quite that way. Although there are some churches today that will preach that for you. But not here. Exodus 5 verse 1. We continue on here. The happily ever after. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh, but Pharaoh, oh shoot, right? We have our first, we have our first hiccup, our first speed bump in Moses happily ever after, right? But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. So that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. In other words, they're lazy. Therefore they cry. That's why they cry. Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So uh, the Israelites are now officially in big trouble. Same amount of bricks. I mean, they're already slaves. They're already in big trouble. And they're already, their quota of bricks is huge, almost impossible. And they're being beaten and all this sort of stuff. And now Moses goes to Pharaoh, and now it's even worse. They have to keep making that same amount of bricks. Plus, they have to go and gather their own straw. So they're, they're, this is real trouble here. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. 
Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt. You can just, you can get a sense of the desperation, scattered, trying to find straw, missing sleep. To gather stubble for straw, the taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Verse 15, then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he, that's Pharaoh, said, you are idle. Okay, you're lazy. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same amount of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And then they, the Israelite foreman met Moses and Aaron. Uh, and I'll just stop there for just a moment. What a difference 24 hours makes. What a difference 24 hours makes. I mean, one day, Moses shows up. Yahweh's going to deliver you. Everybody believes. They bow their heads and worship. Woo! Awesome! God called me to do this. I'm doing it. It's all falling into place. This is great. And one day later, one day later, the Israelite foreman met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses obeys God. God says, go to, Is go to Egypt, talk to Pharaoh. He's going to let my people go. Moses goes and does what God is telling him to do, and does his life get better or worse? Worse. I mean, not only do things not stay the same, they don't get better, but they don't even just stay the same as a direct result of Moses doing what God told him to do. Things get worse as a direct result of the obedience. Have you ever been there? I know lots of people have been there. I've been there times in my life. You know, God, God spoke to you to do something, right? I mean, I've, I've heard so many stories like this. Uh, and people, and they weren't being weird either. I mean, they got confirmations and everything. God told me to get involved X in this ministry over here. Or God told me that this person, I should date this person. Or, and that's always one I kind of mistrust. But anyway, uh, God told me whatever, right? God spoke to me, and I did it. And then after I did it, though, I did just what God was telling me to do, and things not only didn't get better, they actually got much, much worse. And whenever that happens, we do one of two things. Whenever that happens, we do one of two things. We either question ourselves or we question God, right? I mean, when you're trying to obey God, and then so you just do what he's telling you to do. That's all you're doing. You wouldn't have done it in the first place, but you felt like he said to do it. So you did it. That's what we should do, obey, right? You did it, and what he was telling you to do, and then things went real south in a real hurry, hurry as a result of your obedience. And, if, and when that happens, you're going to do one or two things. You're either going to question yourself. You're going to think to yourself, well, maybe I didn't hear God right. Right? Maybe I didn't hear God right. Or 
And sometimes that's true, right? Sometimes people have just done something stupid and it wasn't God speaking to them. But you'll question yourself. Uh, maybe I didn't hear God, right? Or you'll question God. God, why? I've seen people get very bitter. Why would you ask me to do something that was that painful, that would bring that kind of trouble into my life? And that's exactly what we see Moses doing here, right? That's what Moses is doing. Moses turned to the Lord, right? If we go to verses 22 and 23 again. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? He's questioning God. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is upset at God, right? You told me to do this, and I obeyed, and now things got worse. Now, you know, if this was the only story in the Bible like this, it'd be easy to kind of just sweep it under the rug, right? I mean, there's, there's certain things like that in the Bible, right? There's, you know, like when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. I mean, there's only one story in the Bible like that. And we know that it had something to do with, you know, a prophetic act of what Jesus was going to, you know, the father would do to Jesus on the cross. And so we read, you know, Abraham and Isaac, and we know God's not telling us to do that. Okay? And so it would, be, it would be sort of the same thing here. You know, if this was the only story in the Bible where God told someone to do something and then after they obeyed, things got a lot worse, if this was the only story like that in the Bible, we could just kind of, ah, you know, it was a one-time thing. But you know, as I was meditating on this passage this week and praying, I realized this is all over the scripture and that's problematic for us. I mean, there are many, many, many examples in scripture, where God would tell people to do something, they would just do exactly what he said, and as a direct result of them obeying, things would get much worse for them. And some of those examples that we've looked at already in this series, but I've been reading in the Gospels in my devotions uh, uh, the last uh, couple of weeks a lot, and, and two, two examples from the Gospels just jumped out at me right, right away. Um, in the Gospels, there are, there are two instances, two separate instances in the Gospels where Jesus tells his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of a lake or, or whatever. Okay? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I want you to just think about for a moment here, if you are one of Jesus' disciples, if Jesus tells you to get into a boat, I mean, you would think, this has got to be the safest place for me to be. I mean, we're going to have clear sailing because Jesus knows the weather, right? I mean, am I not right? He's God. And if Jesus knows the weather and he tells me to get into the boat, woohoo! I mean, we're just going to have a nice light breeze behind us and right across the lake we'll go. That's how it worked, right? See, the disciples actually found something a little different, didn't they? See, what they discovered about Jesus is the fact that Jesus knows the weather doesn't mean that you're going to have smooth sailing when he gets into a boat. In fact, what they found was bo in both cases where Jesus told them to get into a boat and go to the other side, in both cases, the moment they were far enough from shore that they couldn't get back, they ran into what? Life-threatening squalls. See, from the, in the disciples' experience, what they learned was this. The fact that Jesus knows what the weather is means that if he tells me to get into a boat, I should probably bring a life preserver and a bucket. Because he's got some fun planned for me on the way, right? Isn't that true? Now, I mean, obviously, of course, there's a little bit of exaggeration. It's not like every time God asks you to do something, he puts you into a storm. And certainly, certainly there are times when, you know, God asks you to do something and you do it and things just fall into place. One, two, three, and you go, wow, God was in this. And oh, I love when he does that. I mean, that's our favorite, right? Tell me to do something, make it easy, we go and we do it. 
Um, my point isn't that he never does that. He obviously does do that. My point is that we see many times in Scripture and many times in our own lives when he does things the way he was doing them here with Moses. This is actually a common way that he works. And this just goes against the grain of how we think about God. It goes, and I'm not even just talking about prosperity gospel and those churches that preach that. I'm not even talking about them. I'm talking about just all the rest of us too. We have this, we have this way of thinking in our heads that if God asks me to do something, then it's going to go good. We just think, of course, if he asks me to do it and I do it, it's going to go good. I mean, we even, we even have, there's this famous saying that we have, right? You often find it on cards and stuff like that. And the saying is, uh, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, right? Now, I don't know who originally said that. I actually think in the original context, I think what the, the author was trying to say was, if you're in the center of God's will, then even when storms hit, he's with you. And I totally 100% agree with that. I totally 100% agree. But I think in our popular culture, how we've come to understand that quote, how we kind of use that quote, is we have this idea like, if I just do what God tells me to do, ha, if I'm in the center of his will, I'm in a safe place. It's easy. Right? Well, tell that to the disciples. Jesus says, get in the boat. Next thing you know, they're screaming, God, we're going to die. Right? How about, how about, I was thinking of another one this week, too, from the Gospels. How about John the Baptist? Let's think about John the Baptist for just a moment. We'll get back to Moses yet, but John the Baptist, this, is, this, this one just gets me. Um, John the Baptist gets called into ministry, right? I mean, right from a young age, God's got his hand on him. You're going to go into ministry. He knows he's going to go into ministry, okay? So he goes into ministry. He does what God told him to do. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He goes into ministry. He starts his preaching ministry, and his preaching ministry, it grows really fast. It gets really big really fast. And then one year later, okay, give or take a little bit. We don't know exactly how long his ministry was, but it was around one year, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But basically, one year later, think about that for a moment. All your life, you're going into ministry. God gives you a call into ministry. You start up a ministry, and one year later, Jesus shows up, and it tells us in the Gospels. You can read this in the first few chapters of John, and also in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, one year later, Jesus shows up, and it says, explicitly, it says in the Gospels, it says, everyone left John to go and follow Jesus, Okay? Now, we read that now as Christians. Like we, we read it like we do with the whole Bible without any compassion for the characters involved. And we read this and we go, well, of course they all left John to go be with Jesus. Of course they did, okay? Let's just try to be John for a moment, shall we? Let's just try to put ourselves in his shoes. I want you to imagine that God has called you into ministry and you feel fired up for your ministry. And you're going to do this thing. And then at first, for the first little bit, it grows. But after one year, you've been called to ministry. You, have, you totally have a calling from God. And after one year, everybody leaves your ministry to go where, somewhere else where God's doing something else. How would that feel? And then what happens after that? Because, again, this just goes, this just goes against how we think things should work, right? If God calls me into ministry, the ministry's going to grow, grow, grow. It's not going to fail. It's not going to shrink. I'm not going to have huge struggles because God told me to do it, right? That's how we think. John the Baptist gets one year, everybody leaves his ministry. Think of how you feel. And then what happens after that is he writes a book and makes millions of dollars and becomes very famous as a, as a minister, right? <laughs> and after this inglorious end to his ministry, he gets chucked in prison. And while he's in prison, he sends a message to Jesus, Okay? He sends a message to Jesus because he's been telling everybody that Jesus is the Messiah. And a Messiah is supposed to save you from things. 
So he sends a message to Jesus. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 11. He sends a message to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm in prison. Okay, remember, he's been telling everybody that the Messiah is here to save them and blah, blah, blah. He sends a message. Jesus, I'm in prison. And you know what Jesus does? He leaves him in prison. Wow, following God, center of God's will. That's the safest place to be. And shortly after that, off with his head. You say, boy, I'm motivated now to serve. Woo. <laughs> Let's get into it, right? See, we have this idea, right? The center of, center of God's will is the safest place to be. If I do what God's telling me to do, everything falls into place. One, two, three. Let, let, me, let me just make it even a little more specific because it's easy for us to talk about these things when it applies to John the Baptist or the disciples. But what about with ourselves? Because we just have certain hang-ups in our Christian ways of thinking and we just don't think God would work that way. For example, some of us would say, you know, if you are following God's will, you would, God would never let you go bankrupt. Really? Well, you say, well, of course. Yeah, no, no, no. If God tells you to do something and you're following God's will and you're not being an idiot, you could never go bankrupt. Really? Where does it say that? You say, well, Philippians says my God will supply all your needs. Yeah, he will supply all your needs. He'll make sure your kids keep eating. He'll make sure that you have enough to do whatever the things are that he has given you to accomplish. But where does it say he would never let a godly person go through a bankruptcy? Doesn't say that. Where does it say that? If I do exactly what God's telling me to do, I'm just going to follow him. Of course, I won't get sick because I would never get cancer or anything like that because I'm doing what he wants me to do. He's going to make everything fall into place and everything will be happy and easy for me. It doesn't say that in Scripture. In fact, many, many characters in Scripture and throughout the ages have found that often, even after you say yes to God, in fact, sometimes as a direct result of you saying yes to God, as a direct result of your obedience, oftentimes things will get worse. Why? Well, I don't propose to know all the reasons why, and God has many reasons and many situations and many people. There's different things he's doing. I think in Moses' case, if we go back to Exodus 5, I think in Moses' case, there is, uh, Moses was going through a test. There's a, a, a test that God uh, likes to put people through. In the Bible, and today, throughout the ages, there is a, a test that God likes to put people through. So God gives someone an assignment. They start to run towards him. And one of the first things God will do after someone says yes to him is he's going to put them through a test. And I think you could call this test a hundred different names. Okay? So it doesn't really matter what you name it. I'm not very creative. I just this week came up with the name the press into God test. Okay? I just call it the press into God test. And here's what the press into God test is. God gives you an assignment. You say yes. And then the first thing that happens is God makes sure you run into a brick wall or a storm or a crisis of some kind. And you've just said yes, but right away, very soon after, boom, you run into a brick wall. And it's right then that you're going to have one, you have one of three options. One of three options. Option number one is the option many, many people take, and they fail to press into God test. But because what they do when they hit that brick wall, they say yes to the assignment, they run into the brick wall, and they just go, they throw up their hands, well, that must not have been God, and they cut their losses and run, they quit. They just quit. At the first sign of trouble, they quit, they're out of there. That couldn't have been God. It just doesn't fit with how God would work. They're out of there. Second group of people, they also fail to press into God test. They fail, uh, this is usually has to do with a certain type of personality of people tends to do this. But what they do, when they run into the brick wall, they get an assignment from God, they say yes, they run to a brick wall. They don't quit, 
But what they do is they just knuckle down harder and they barge ahead. I'm going to do it. They usually, they usually have a few really uh, nice and neat Christian slogans. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then they don't wait for Christ and they just barge ahead. And they have their little slogans. They have their little positive attitude and they just barge ahead. Usually those people get hurt even worse further down the road. And then there's a third group of people that are out there, and it's exactly this group of people that God is looking for, and that's why he gives the press and the God test in the first place, because he's weeding out groups one and two. He's weeding out all the people who are just going to quit at the first sign of trouble. He's weeding out all the people who are going to just depend on their own strength and just run ahead and, you know, shout their little slogans and keep going. And he's looking for one type of people, and it's the people who are at the sign of trouble, what their only reaction is to turn to God. He's looking for the people that at the first sign of trouble, at the first sign of a storm, at the first sign of crisis, they're not going to quit. They're not going to barge ahead. Their first gut reaction is, I got to pray. Where's God? And they're going to press into the presence of God and they want to see, God, what are you up to? God, I need your help. They're going to cry out to him. But that's what they're going to do. They're going to turn to God. And by the way, that's the only way to pass this test. That's why I call it the pressing to God test. You don't pass it by having good doctrine. You don't pass it by having other people pray for you. You pass it by you going into the presence of God. When the crisis hits, you don't quit. You don't barge ahead. You go, God, what's happening? And the thing I want you to notice here is that Moses does the right thing, doesn't he? He does the right thing. I mean, throughout this series, we've been looking at how human Moses is, and I just love him, and, and I am in no way at any point of Moses' life critical of him because I doubt any of us, for sure not myself, would have done any better than him at any point in his journey. So I'm not critical of him, but I just love that he's so human. And so we've seen so far in this story how he's, he's doubting, he's fearful, he's compromising, but here he gets it right. He does the right thing. He's upset, but what does he do? If we go again to Exodus 5:22, we look at what it says there, then Moses turned to the Lord. He got aside somewhere. It doesn't tell us where. It doesn't tell us for how long. It must have been, I mean, he obviously got away alone with God somewhere because, you know, much of chapter 6 then is his conversation with God. But the first thing, I mean, think of the pressure. Think of the pressure Moses is under. I mean, try to put yourselves in his shoes. I mean, his people, his nation people, they have been in bondage for a couple hundred years. Like really, really bad. His relatives, okay, remember his parents, his cousins, his siblings are in horrible bondage, okay? And God calls him now to now go and deliver them. So, there's, so he goes and he just does what God's telling him to do. And these people now are getting tortured, beaten, and killed because of what he did. Think of the shame and the guilt. Think of the guilt you'd carry as your Israelite, these people you love, they come to you and say, you have made things worse for us, Moses. Think of how he feels. Think of the temptation here to just fall apart, to just quit, to run, or to, you know, try harder to fix this thing. And Moses does neither of those things. He doesn't quit. He doesn't fall apart. He turns to God. He gets alone with God. He gets aside. He goes to prayer and he cries out. He's upset, but that's okay. It's okay to be upset. God's not upset with him. God, in fact, that's why God is bringing these things into Moses' life in the first place. He wants Moses to come to him. So Moses turns to the Lord and that's how you get through, that's how you get through a crisis like this. Again, there is no other way to do this. There's no shortcuts. There's no substitutes. And I'm amazed, I'm constantly amazed at the things we will substitute instead of actually praying. 
I mean, we will just, we, we will substitute. We don't actually want to pray ourselves, do we? I want you to notice that Moses does not subcontract out his prayers. He doesn't go, hey, Aaron, you work for me. Go and pray and see what God's doing here. Doesn't do that. How many of us do that though, right? I mean, I, I can tell you, and by the way, it's not you guys. You guys have it together. I know it's the other three services we have a lot of problems with. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when I talk to people from other services, not you guys, but when I talk to people from other services, I'm constantly amazed. You know, someone's in a real crisis. Their marriage is in the toilet or someone has just died or, or you know, some big whatever. Some, things are falling apart, finances, whatever. You talk to them, okay, what have you done so far? And they've, you know, they've Facebooked like 100 people to pray for them. Well, that's good, you know? Uh, get, a, get 100 people to pray for you, great. They've got their cell to pray for them. It's super, you get as many people as you can to pray for you. I love that. They've gone to counseling. Hey, awesome. You know, go talk to some people, get some wise counsel. I love that. They've read a book about, you know, their problem and they've learned stuff about it. Great, all those things are good. I'm not making fun of any of those things. But what I'm talking about is, in our culture, we'll do all of these things, but then when you try to pin them down, because they're right in the heat of the battle, they're right in the, in the smoke of the crisis, and you try to pin them down. But have you even set aside one 60-minute block to just seek God's face? Have you set aside even one evening or one morning or one weekend to just turn to God and cry out to him and say, Lord, I'm in a crisis. And when you get to that, you find that most people have just a blank spot. They've done everything else but actually seek God themselves. And the present of God test, you can't, there's no shortcuts. There's no substitutes. You have to go, to get through that crisis, you have to go into God's presence yourself. And so that's what Moses does. And I want to show you now two things. Two things. God's going to give Moses two things in his prayer time. And you can only get these things if you go to God yourself. You, they don't come through a book. They don't come through somebody else talks to you or something like that. I mean, yeah, it's great. Other people pray for you. They get words from God from you. They get encouragements for you. It's great. I mean, we need encouragement from each other. I'm not saying that. We need prayer from other people. No question. I love that. But there are two things you absolutely must have to get through your storm, and you will only get them. God will not give them to you unless you come into his arms. He wants to give them to you, but he won't give them to you unless you, he, you come into his arms. I want you to show you these two things. I'm going to go to the very next verse now. Uh, so Moses has cried out to God, last verse of chapter 5, very next verse, first verse of chapter 6. Here, let's look at what happens. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. What's the first thing God gives to Moses when Moses turns, Moses turns to God and he cries out, oh Lord, we're in trouble. And the first thing God says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. What does he give him? He gives him a promise. He gives him a promise. And you know, this is, this is, this is uh, hugely important, but I just want to dwell on God here for just a minute. I just love this about God. Moses is upset. God isn't upset. Moses is upset. Oh, God, it's falling apart. And he's, he's mad at God even. And God is just, God is actually happy that Moses is coming to him. And so he doesn't berate him. He doesn't tell Moses, hey, get your stuff together. I just told you at the burning bush, like what, a week or two ago, whatever it was, I just talked to you and said, 
you know, I'm going to do something. Why are you coming and crying to me now? He doesn't tell him that. He doesn't slap him around. Okay? Moses cries out to him. And what does God give him? A promise. And you know when a crisis hits in your life, you need a promise. Because here's the thing. When a crisis hits in your life, and by the way, the crisis is different than the desert. So just dwell there for just a moment. We talked... We talked, you know, uh, two messages ago there about the desert. And, and when you're in the desert, you feel like God isn't speaking to you. And you can seek after him. It feels like he's not speaking to you. And he's doing a work in your life. And, and you've got to just wait. You, ha- you can't give up on him, but you just have to wait. But it might seem like he's quiet. But the desert is different than the crisis. When you're in a crisis, that's when it's emergency mode and things are falling apart, right? And in a crisis, you go to God and he wants to give you a promise and you need that promise because what's happening is, is the pressures are going to crush you. You have these intense pressures. And if you're empty on the inside, if you are hopeless, if you are without faith, those pressures will flatten you. And many Christians get flattened. They totally give up. They go into despair. They become bitter. Whatever it is, flattening looks different in different people, but they're done. They get crushed by their circumstances. And the reason they get crushed is because the force of the pressures on them are greater than the force they have inside to withstand it. And so when the crisis hits, the, one of the first things you need is you turn to God and he breathes a promise into, you, into your heart and that promise bolsters you on the inside. The pressures are intense. The promise doesn't change your circumstances. Moses' circumstances here haven't changed one bit yet. Not at all. And they're not going to for quite some time. They haven't changed. But, in the sa- this circumstance that he's in, God breathes a promise, and the promise bolsters you on the inside. It gives you hope. It gives you faith so that the pressures don't crush you. Hugely, hugely important. Now, I know that one of the reasons we don't go to prayer when a crisis hits is we don't believe God actually wants to give us a promise. We don't believe it. And the thing I have to tell you again here today is the crisis in your life, the storms, the storms that Moses hit, these were no accident. God saw them coming long in advance. In fact, in many cases, he's planning them and working them because he's sovereign and he's just working the absolute perfect crisis to get you to a place where you'll come to him and he can mold you and use you and love you and speak to you. So it's no accident that there's a crisis in your life. So when you turn to him, when a crisis hits your life, it's not that God's mad at you or he's distant from you. When a crisis hits your life, he's calling you. And he wants to give you a promise. I want to jump out of Exodus just for two minutes here. I could show you dozens and dozens of promises in Scripture, but I want to show you that the Scripture clearly says that God wants to give you a promise. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God. So to, to press into God's presence, whoever wants to press into God's presence, it, they have to believe two things. I want you to see this. They have to believe two things. If you want to go into the presence of God and, and, and you want him to change your life, you have to believe two things. First of all, you must believe that he exists. Well, we all have that one crossed off. That's easy. We all believe God exists. Very few of us believe number two, and that's why many of us have a completely dead prayer life. But you also believe something else. You have to believe he exists, number one. And, number two, you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe that he rewards those who seek him. And many Christians, they believe, number one, yeah, does God exist? They believe it. That's why they're Christian. But if you ask them, 
But if in, in their hearts, and maybe in their minds they would say yes to number two too, but in their hearts they don't. The reason they don't pray is they don't really believe that God will reward you when you pray. And by the way, when I say reward, I don't mean make rainbows and lollipops come dancing up in your life right away. I mean, like, Moses got his reward. wasn't that his circumstances changed right away. His reward was a promise to bolster him on the inside, that God would speak to him. He wants to. He will reward those who seek him. Psalm 145, 18 and 19. Again, I could show you many, many promises along these lines. But let's look at what Psalm 148, 18 and 19 says. This is a great promise. The Lord is near to the super spiritual. Right? The Lord is near to pastors and, you know, prophetic people and prayer people and widows. He's, he's near. Yeah, that's who he's near to, but not to. No, that's not what it says, does it? It says, the Lord is near to all. The Lord is near to all who call on him. That means in order to qualify for this promise, you just need two things. You need to be a human being. Are you a human being? Okay, good. If you say yes to that one, and are you calling on the Lord? Are you desperate? Do you go to him, Lord, I need help. If, they, if you qualify, you're a human being, and you're calling out to God, it says he's near to you. That's all. I mean, if you're breathing, and then you call, God, I need help. He's near to you. You qualify. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And that, by the way, is not a hard qualification to meet. It just means you actually believe in him and you are trusting in him and you want him to deliver you. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So the Bible promises that, that when you hit that crisis, that storm, that brick wall, whatever it is, you come into that dark time, if you will turn to God, again, you can't contract this out. It's not other people praying for you. It's not you knowing good doctrine. Their only way is you get aside with God and go to God. And if you will do that, he will give you a promise. He will reward you. Now, there's one last thing I want you to notice about this promise here in Exodus 6.1. If you could just throw that up again. Um, so here we see the promise. What is the promise God gives them? He says, Pharaoh's going to let the people of Israel go. Now, the thing that I find really interesting about this promise is there is no new information here. There's no new information here. This is exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing that God told Moses just a week or two earlier, depending on how long it took him to get through to, to Egypt. So we don't know exactly how long, but a week or two earlier, Moses has this incredible experience at the burning bush. And God tells him this exact same thing that he has here, just a week or two earlier. Let me show it to you. Three chapters earlier, Exodus 3.20, God says to Moses at the burning bush, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, speaking of Pharaoh, will let you go. So the promise that Moses gets. So God tells Moses something. Two weeks later, Moses freaks out and God tells him the same thing again. Okay? You say, well, why does Moses need to hear the same thing again? Okay? For the same reason that even though my wife told me I love you last week, I needed to hear it again this week a bunch of times. And the fact that my wife on told me I love you this week me, doesn't mean that I won't need her. I will still need her to do it again next week. I'm one of those guys, I get really pathetic if I don't hear I love you every once in a while. <laughs> I get really pathetic, okay? Now, when she says I love you to me, no new information there. Absolutely none. But still, I need it. Why? It's not new information we need. It's heart affirmation that we need. And Moses, he has the information already. He got the information at the burning bush. No problem. But the moment he hits the crisis, 
What does he need? He needs his heart affirmed again. He needs, it, he needs hope again. See, it's, it's kind of like this. It's, uh, let's talk about campfires. I don't know much about them. I need a lot of gasoline to start mine. But uh, some people like campfires. Great, great. You're sitting around a campfire. Here's the thing I know about campfires. If you want to keep a campfire going, you have to keep feeding it wood. If you stop putting wood in there, because a fire needs fuel to burn. If you stop putting wood in there, it's going to peter out and die. Yesterday's wood that you burned doesn't keep today's fire burning, does it? I mean, imagine, imagine you're sitting around this fire with some guy, and maybe, you know, he's a couple bricks short of a load, or whatever, and uh, whatever that means, and uh, he just, you're just sitting there with him, and the fire's going, and he doesn't put any wood on this thing, and it peters out, and then he gets mad. Oh, this dumb fire just decides to go out. You look at him, what's the matter with you? Of course it went out. You didn't put wood in there. Fire's not going to burn without wood, right? Well, here's the thing. Same thing with your heart. If you want your heart to have, to burn with hope and faith and joy in the midst of a dark crisis, last year's promise from God is not going to keep you going through this year's crisis. Last month's promise from God or touch from God is not necessarily going to keep you going through this month's trial. If you want your heart, especially in a crisis or a dark time, that's when a fire goes out. You need a fresh word. You need a fresh touch from God. And that's why you can't contract this out. You can't say to someone else, you just pray for me. Sure, get them to pray for you. That's great. But your heart, in order for you to stand strong when the pressure is so intense, you have to go into the presence of God for yourself because nobody can put fuel on your heart's fire. And Moses, so Moses, he gets the word from God. Pharaoh's going to let him go. He runs smack into a really big brick wall. And the fire goes out two weeks. His fire from two weeks ago is out like that. It's blown out. So he turns to God. Oh, God, help me. And the first thing God gives him is he gives him a fresh promise. Fresh promise. Well, God does more than just give him a fresh promise. There's a second thing God gives him. I want to read that to you now in the very next verse, 6 verse 2. He gives them, and this one's even actually more important. It's even better than the fresh promise. But God, when you turn to God and you're in a crisis in a dark time, you turn to God, oh God, help me. He's also going to give you something else and that is a fresh revelation of himself. Gives you a fresh revelation of himself. Look what it says, very next verse, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Now the translators there They don't ever translate Yahweh. I wish they would because it obscures what's going on there. God didn't say to Moses, I am the Lord. Wherever in your translation you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, it's translated from Yahweh. God didn't say to Moses, I am the Lord. He's telling Moses his name. He says, so Moses comes running to him. He's upset and God brings him in and he says, I am Yahweh. And he speaks his name to Moses. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So Moses actually got a new revelation of God that nobody had had before. 
Okay, now, of course, when we turn to God, it's not that we're going to get, you know, new revelations of God that nobody's ever had before. But what, I, what we see here is that when you turn to God in a crisis, he's going to reveal himself to you. He's going to reveal aspects of his character. And this is hugely critical when a storm hits in your life. Because here's the thing about a storm. When a storm hits, whatever the storm is, there's so many different ones. You know, a loved one, we've had, it's been just the last couple of years here at Southland, we've had so many tragic deaths touch people in this in, in, in our family. And it's sad. And we miss these people, right? But someone, you know, a tragic death happens. And when that happens, you don't know how you're going to cope. How am I going to keep living? Everything's different. I'm going to miss this person. And how am I going to deal? And this problem just looks so big. Or, or you're about to go bankrupt. Or whatever. Your marriage thing is 15 years of just strain and trouble and it never gets better and whatever your problem is it just looks so big this could I, it can't be fixed and so you what you need is you have and nobody else someone tells you oh god is good and god is loving that they tell that to your brain it doesn't do anything for you when you're in a crisis you need that revelation in your heart that's where the fire is right so you turn to God and he says, I am Yahweh. Or he shows you some element of himself and you go, you go oh, and you, your perspective is restored and you see that God is bigger than death and God is bigger than bankruptcy and God is bigger than whatever the stress is on you. You see God. And just seeing him, it's not even that he takes away your situation, but just seeing in your heart and experiencing that he is bigger than that issue changes you and you're not crushed by this overwhelming problem. And you know, God is, he's strategic too. When he reveals himself, when you cry out to him in the midst of a crisis, he's strategic. And he, he brings these crises, he, he allows these crises to touch us in our lives um, so that he can reveal some aspect of himself to us. And so depending on your situation, he'll reveal a different aspect of himself to you. So depending on your storm, you may cry out to God, oh God, help me. And he will reveal himself to you as father. And you'll have an encounter with him as father or he'll reveal himself to you as protector and you will have you will go into his presence and protector or provider or counselor or whatever it is but he'll reveal some element of himself and it's exactly what you need in that problem to continue to stand and oh yes god is bigger than this thing now what i'm telling you here right now this is how you overcome you know, so many messages they got preached nowadays, it's like, here's five steps to overcome your problems. Here's six steps to overcome this problem. Here's three steps to get you. It, it's not steps. I mean, sometimes there's practical things we can learn. I'm not against that. We do some of that here as well. But what I'm telling you here right now, this is how you overcome. It's not five steps, six steps, three steps, ten steps. It is turn to God yourself. Go into his presence. Throw yourself at his feet. And when he shows you, I am your protector and your heart thrills within you and you worship him, hope soars in your heart right in the midst of your dark time. That's how you overcome. That's how you overcome. What I'm showing you here right now this morning, this is everything. This is everything. There is, what else is there in the Christian life if there isn't this? This is what the Christian life is, knowing God. Knowing God. And the sad thing to me is that many Christians in our churches, many Christians in our churches 
have no idea what I'm talking about right now. We go to church all our lives. We hear about God, about God, about God. We read books about God. We listen to other people tell us about God. And we just think the Christian life is knowing about God. And so God will bring crises into our life because he can't stand us just talking about him and not talking to him. And he brings crises into our lives to make us desperate so that we will do something that we don't normally want to do and that is actually just get alone with him and cry out to him and press into his presence. You know, it's kind of like, like the mountains. You can, you can talk to people about the mountains. You can even show people pictures about the mountains. But unless someone actually goes into the mountains, they don't know anything about the mountains. Isn't that true? I mean, you can talk to your blue in the face about the mountains. You can show them pictures of the mountains. Oh, that's cute. That's nice. That's pretty. But until someone actually goes into the mountains, they don't have any idea what the mountains are all about. I mean, as I've talked about before, I mean, I spent three summers in, in BC planting in the mountains in British Columbia. And one place in particular just stands out above all the rest of the places that I saw. And I saw a lot of spectacular ones. I mean, it's just beautiful. But one place, it was in our second summer, there was one place we went we spent one week working in this one place and, and our camp was at the base and every morning uh, we would drive up on these logging roads, kind of switch backing up and we would drive up for two hours. So you're quite high up already by the time you got to the end. Two hours one way and then we would get out of what we called the block which was just the big clear cut where we were planting trees in there. And when you would get out at this, in this clear cut here, uh, the view was astonishing. It was It was stunning. You look out, there was this huge valley. And by this point, you were so high up that at the bottom of the valley, there was a town in there. You could hardly see it. It was just kind of hazy. It was green. But this valley just went out from, from below you. Absolutely spectacular. And then around this valley, there was three uh, other towering peaks, all of them snow-capped. And I mean, it was just, it was the most stunning thing. It was just unbelievable. And every morning, that week that we were there, every morning we'd get out the truck, and even the most hardened guys, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, real hard types out there, you know, planting trees. And we would get out, and even the most hardened guys, there's just almost this, there's just like, wow, there's a moment of silence almost. You get out of the truck, and it's just, wow. I mean, we weren't just seeing beauty. You were feeling, you were experiencing beauty. It wasn't just something you were looking at. It just was consuming. It just took your breath away. It was majestic. I mean, throughout the day, I would just have times and we'd be working and I would just stand up for a few seconds and immediately you would be in worship because what you were looking at was just so breathtaking. And so, of course, I mean, I did what all of us human beings have, have done ever since the camera was invented. Something happened to our DNA and flipped and, and so whenever we see beautiful things now, we just have to click it, right? We've got to take a picture of this. And now I'm, I feel kind of old now, but... Uh, but it, with digital cameras, when you talk like this, you feel old, but digital cameras weren't even around then, right? So uh, I feel old when I say that. But so kids, I actually had to take the film out and go to a store and get it developed. But, uh, but anyway, so click. And of course, when you didn't have digital cameras, you didn't go, you just, one was enough, okay, one. And, uh, and uh, then I, you got to wait till the end of summer, right? So I'm, 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 I can hardly wait, end of summer. I get these pictures developed and I want to show people this unbelievable place I've been to. And so you pick up the pictures from the store and you flip through them and I get to this place and talk about major letdown. <laughs> Have you ever been there? I mean, you went to somewhere really amazing and you click pictures and you look at the pictures and it's a major letdown. 
And you go to show people this place, and it was like a spiritual experience just to go there. You show them, and they go, oh, that's pretty. And you go, no, no. It was not, oh, that's pretty. It was stunning. It was, it was change your life, beautiful. It was awesome. And they don't get it, right? You can talk to them about it. You can show them pictures about it. But unless they actually go there themselves, they don't know anything about it. And you know, that same thing is in our churches right now. We have got many, many, many Christians. And all their lives, they have been talking about the mountains. Talking about God. Hearing other people talk about God. They've been looking at people's pictures of the mountains. In other words, they've been looking at, other people have been telling them their experiences with God. They looked at the pictures and they go, wow, that's neat. What a good God. And they hear messages, God is loving. And God's your father. And they think that they know everything there is to know about God because they've heard people talk to them about the mountains and they themselves have talked about the mountains, but they have never actually gone into the mountains themselves. And they know actually nothing, almost nothing about God. They do not know what it's like in the wee hours of the morning to be on your knees and on your face, to be seeking God. Or in the evening, because the crisis is so intense. Rather, they would drown out the crisis with movies and social media and video games, anything just not to think about it. That's how we deal and cope with our problems now. Just try not to think about it. But we don't know what it's like like Moses, to actually cry out to God just by ourselves, not somebody else doing it for us. But we go into the basement, and it's me and God. And of course, God doesn't show up every time you do that. And sometimes you just, you you let out your feelings, and you pray, and it's a wonderful time. You quiet your heart, but he doesn't show up. But you don't know the experience that sometimes he does show up. And you get alone with God and the presence of God comes into that place and the tears stream down your face as he reveals himself to you and says, I love you. And you feel his goodness just coursing through your whole body. That's what it means to experience God. And that's what he wants. He puts crises in your life because he wants you to turn to him. And what Moses is doing here when he he cries out to the Lord, Oh, Lord is he is dipping his toes into stage four. I've been talking about stage four is coming this whole time. He is dipping his toes for the first time into stage four. And here's what stage four is. Going from being an ordinary person who cannot be used to being an ordinary person who can be used. Stage four is you meet with God, you walk with God, and you know God. You don't just know about him, but you know God personally. And I'm going to expand on this next week, but... From Exodus 5 onwards, a pattern emerges in Moses' life. A pattern emerges in Moses' life that, from the, that it wasn't there before. We've gone through the first three stages of Moses' life. After Exodus 5, a pattern emerges in Moses' life, and this is the pattern. Whenever Moses is in trouble, whenever Moses needs help, whenever Moses needs wisdom or guidance, he does one thing. I'm going to show it to you right throughout the rest of the Uh, books of the law, is he turns to God. He goes into the presence of God. 
And the amazing thing you're going to see is, as a direct result of him going into the presence of God over and over again, you are going to see God radically transform his heart. He goes from being a fearful, doubting, compromising man, he goes to being one of the greatest overcomers the world has ever seen. But he's still the same ordinary human being he was in both places. But over here, he's filled with the Spirit of God because he's been walking with God. And Moses goes from being this scared, compromising man in the desert, he goes to being one of the greatest overcomers the world has ever seen. He, he didn't give up in the face of some of the most daunting circumstances anyone has ever gone through. Because he walked with God. He met with God. He knew God. He went into the mountains and he stopped just talking about the mountains. I want to finish this message with one last verse. Exodus 6 verse 9. Moses goes into the presence of God. Oh, I've got a crisis. He turns to God. God gives him a promise. God gives him a fresh revelation of who he is. And so Moses has hope again. He goes from despair in one meeting with God. He goes from despair to hope. The circumstances are exactly the same, but he's gone from despair to hope. And so he goes now back to the Israelites and he's going to tell them the promises that God has given them. And that's what he does. Moses 6 verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He tell, retells them what God just told him. But I want you to notice this. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. See, here's the thing. They didn't go into the presence of God. See, there's two groups of Christians. Moses goes into the presence of God. Oh, and God ministers to him. His circumstances are still the same, but at least now he has hope in those. And he goes back and he's thinking now, because you, you'll have this too when you begin to meet with God and he will buoy you up with hope and faith and you will feel this and you'll go to other people and talk to them like they should have hope and faith too and they don't. They have a broken spirit because of their harsh slavery because they have not been in the presence of God. And that's the two groups of Christians we see. Every Christian goes through tough times in their life, some more than others, but everyone faces tough things. But one group is broken and one group is overcoming. And the difference is one thing, who will go into the presence of God. So I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. This isn't about Moses anymore. This is about you and me. Just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. This isn't about Moses anymore. This is about you and me. God wants to get a hold of your heart here today. And it's time for us to just stop, to stop just talking about God. We need to start talking to him. We need to start being with him. If you're here today and you're in the middle of a crisis, a storm, some big stress in your life, some big assignment God's given you, you don't know how you're going to manage it, the answer to your stresses and problems is God. End of sentence. That's, he is the answer. He is the solution. There are no other solutions. He is your solution. He's the solution to your bad marriage. He's the solution to your bad circumstances. I didn't say he's going to fix all your circumstances right away and give you that kind of fairy tale ending right away. But he is the solution because he's going to change your heart. You need a touch from him. You need a fresh word. That word you got from him three years ago at the encounter, that's not going to do it today. You need a fresh word. You need to press into his presence again. You need a fresh revelation of him in your life. So I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want you to just put your hands out as we've been doing throughout this series. And I want you, as I'm praying for you, I want you just to cry out to God and I want you to say to him in your heart, I want to meet with you, God. I need to meet with you. Heavenly Father, I've been praying for these people this weekend and myself. Father, we need a fresh touch from you. We need to fall in love with you. We need to, we need to enter into your presence. 
I pray, God, this week, draw us into your presence. I pray, God, this week we need to set aside time. Some of us have got major issues in our life. We need to set aside even more time. But each of us here needs an encounter with you this week. I pray that we will set aside time. We are committing to set aside time to be with you. And I pray, God, that as we set aside time to be with you, I pray that you would meet us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen.